morning. My name's uh, Brad. I'm part of the teaching and leadership team here at Jericho Ridge. And if you're new or uh, visiting with us, want to extend a very warm uh, welcome to you as we jump into our teaching time and look into God's Word uh, this morning. You know, when uh, Meg and I got married almost 15 years ago, we realized that we had a problem. And the problem was we had come from two completely different money cultures in our relationships. More specifically, we had come from two families of origin who talked and thought about finances in very, very different ways. So in my family of origin, money was a topic that was fair game and it was a topic of conversation all the time. Where did the money come from? Where did it go to? How much did my dad make? How much did we think so-and-so's dad made? (laughs) That was just sort of dinner table conversation at the Sumner house uh, growing up. And then I met Meg, and her family's money culture conversation was very, very different. For them, finances was a very private conversation. And so they approached it quite differently. Any mention of it was highly vague and always impersonal. And so you can imagine when we got married, we had some work to do in our relationship to merge those vastly different money styles. And it's not even that we thought about money a whole lot differently, although we did. It's that we talked about money differently than each other. Every family... Every individual has a money conversation culture. Might be a monologue. It's a little bit easier to manage if it's a monologue. Might be a dialogue. Might be very frank conversations about it. Uh, Might be very obtuse. Might be very private. Might never be talked about. But here's the thing that we're driving at with this teaching series in the month of November. Just like every family has a unique, and every individual in some ways has a unique money conversation culture. Every ministry, uh, every charity, every not-for-profit, every church actually has a money conversation culture as well. Some talk about it incessantly and very belligerently. Some talk about it never. Some are very forward, sometimes aggressive. We call those people telemarketers. (laughs) Some are so secretive, you have no idea how the finances of that particular organization works in any way at all. And in the church, the challenge is that if we never talk about how we talk about money, the myth takes root and grows both in our larger culture and in the church as well, that the church just wants my money whenever they talk about it. So we've made an intentional choice to invest the month of November talking about how we talk about money, if that makes sense. Because it's important to understand that this is a myth, that the church doesn't just want your money. And so the logical question that you should ask then is, okay, well, if they don't just want my money, what do they want? And how are we going to talk about that? 
So as an elders team, we've spent time talking about this and exploring it and praying together and discerning. And what we want, if I could sum up our conversations, is for you, we want your heart to be in line with what God has for you in every area of your life. We want to create an atmosphere here in the life of this faith community where people can live with openness, hope, and safety in all areas of life. And this includes conversations about money and our resources. And so as we've talked about this, our elders teams become increasingly convinced over the course of this last year that we have room to grow in talking about how we talk about money and in our money conversation culture and the type of money conversation culture that we want to actually establish here at Jericho Ridge. And I know this conversation makes some of you nervous. To be frank, it makes me nervous too. And that's saying something coming from a home who always talked about money. Because to be candid, pastors don't really like to talk about how we talk about money. And we like even less to talk about money specifically. Because our livelihood is connected to it. My family's paycheck is attached to the conversation. And because of that personal connection, it feels very kind of raw to talk about money and the church. And it feels a little bit exposed. And quite frankly, to you, it probably feels a little bit self-serving in some ways or can come across in that way. But the challenge is we kind of have to talk about how we talk about money. As Pastor Keith reminded us last weekend, God is deeply interested in what's going on in our hearts and in our lives. And one of the ways that we can actually stick a barometer into our lives and see how we're doing and maturing spiritually is in how we are using the resources that God has entrusted to us, our finances, our time, our talents, all of these types of things. And the news is that as a culture, as Christians here in North America, we're not doing a much better job than people who don't profess faith in any way in talking and thinking about money. I came across this cartoon in Leadership Journal a couple of years ago, and it pictures this perfectly for me. It's kind of true, isn't it? That the very last part of our, our lives to sometimes experience transformation is the way that we think and talk about our resources and our money. And so in this series, we want to kind of lay out, and this morning we want to talk about, do we have any guidance from the Bible to how we talk about money? What principles should guide this conversation and should guide our action as both as individuals and then as a church around how we think and what we do with money? And 1 Corinthians 16 gives us some great principles in a few short verses. There's three principles that guide us in thinking about how we go about uh, resourcing and dispersing the things that God has given to us as individuals and as a church. And so the three principles, I'm going to lay them out for you and then we'll go through them one at a time so you don't have to write them all down now. The first one is uh, give relationally and not randomly. The second principle that we're going to talk about is give systematically. Unfortunately, my spell check was really aggressive and so on the info sheet on the front it says give systemically. I have no idea what it means to give systemically, frankly. <laughs> 
What I meant to say was systematically. Systematically, not emotionally. And give proportionally, not equally. So that's where we're going to go in our conversation in 1 Corinthians 16 this morning. And now before we get there, I want to put just a little bit of like a proviso on uh, this message this morning, which I don't often do. The scripture passage that we're going to look at this morning explicitly says that it's talking to God's family or God's people. And so this is an internal kind of conversation and an expectation for God's people, meaning that if you are a person who has said yes to Jesus and you have asked God to be a part of your life and you want to move in increasing directions towards what God has for you, then this conversation is for you. If you are not there and you're thinking, you know what, I'm curious, but I've never actually crossed the line of faith, I don't think I would say that, uh, that Jesus is an active leader in my life and in my heart, then there's going to be lots of interesting things for you here. And, uh, but a lot of the things that I'll say actually don't apply to you. So you get a bit of a buy this morning. But on the other side of the equation, there are things that are laid out for us in the Scripture that are just good common sense type principles. And so uh, with regards to managing our resources... And so uh, you may want to take some of those and actually be a better manager of the resources, the time, the talent, and the financial resources that have been entrusted to you. So don't check out fully, all right? That's all I'm saying. If you're, if you're here and I'm saying, I'm not a Christian, uh, that's fine. We want to welcome you here. This is a place where you can explore and have a lot of fun with us in the journey together. But this is kind of more in 1 Corinthians 16. If you want to open your Bibles or turn there uh, on your smartphones, on your uversion.com app, and we'll read... Uh, together and look at our text. This is God's word. I'll be reading from the New Living Translation this morning. 1 Corinthians 16 verse 1 says, Now, regarding your question about the money being collected for God's people in Jerusalem, you should follow the same procedure I gave to the churches in Galatia. On the first day of each week, you should put aside a portion of the money that you've earned Don't wait until I get there and try and collect it all at once. When I come, I will write letters of recommendation for the messengers you choose to deliver your gift to Jerusalem. And if it seems appropriate for me to go along, then they can travel with me. See, one of the things that's intriguing to me is we tend to think about a a nervousness or, or a squeamishness around the topic of the church and money as a 21st century phenomenon. And it's definitely been abused extensively. And there are all kinds of history that's attached to that. And so I think we have to own some of that and just acknowledge it, that the church has had a bit of a sordid past in terms of what the church, capital C church, universal church, uh, has had a bit of an institutional history with the way that it's wrestled with money. But even here in the first century, they were still trying to figure it out. And so it's not like they had some pristine kind of well-organized structure and then it got corrupted by some institution along the way. Here in 1 Corinthians 16, we're seeing that this author, uh, the Apostle Paul, he's one of the early leaders in the Christian movement and the author of a lot of the books in the New Testament. He's writing and answering a question that a group of uh, Christ followers had asked about money. And they'd asked about the church and giving, and how they should do it, and why they should do it. And they wanted some guidance on how they should go about practicing generous living. 
And so they wrote to Paul and asked, can you give us some kind of pointers on this? And so Paul gave them advice that's practical, both for them and I think also instructive for us as well. And so the first thing that you look at when you see this text is that this is about a need that has emerged in a church in Jerusalem. And we know from history that this was towards the end of the first century and that there was a famine that had struck the ancient Near East and had struck Judea Judea in particular. And so the Christians in Jerusalem were starving and they were not able to provide for their basic food and basic necessities. And so we know that through the book of Acts, Paul's third journey, he did three kind of trips all the way through the Mediterranean basin. And his third journey was almost exclusively focused on raising money for this problem and solving this challenge that uh, the Jews had in the church in Jerusalem. And we also know from reading the book of Acts that Jerusalem is the epicenter of the early Christian movement. And the Jewish churches in the first part of the first century had been taking up offerings for the spread of the gospel so that Paul and other missionaries could go out and actually share the message of Jesus with the Gentile churches. And so the Jewish churches were heavily invested in that. And now we see just a short period of time later that the fortunes have kind of been reversed and the Gentile Christians are the ones that are now in a place where they're taking up or wanting to take up an offering for the Jewish church and the Jewish Christians in need. And so the churches in the city of Corinth write to Paul and say, what can we do to help? We want to help. What can we do? And Paul says to them, great question. The first thing is know that you're not going to meet this need alone. I've already talked to some other churches that we have relationship with here over in the province of Galatia. And so we're going to work on this thing together. And I want us to do all the same thing. And they're on board too. And the reason that these churches in Galatia and in Corinth are on board for this, to give to this struggling congregation with needs in a distant city is that they have this deep and historic relational connection with the Christian church in Jerusalem. And that brings us to kind of that first giving principle, giving principle number one, and that is give relationally, not randomly. Jesus talks about this. He says, where your money is, where your treasure is, your heart is will be also, and the converse of that is also true, where your relationships are and your heart is, your resources will flow towards that as well. It's very natural and healthy for our money to flow to where our hearts and our relationships are. Our money flows along relational lines, and so our giving should flow along relational lines as well. We want to provide for the things that our heart are, and resource the things that our heart is connected to. And so historically, we see that there's this sense of interdependence between the Christians in Jerusalem and the Christians in the Gentile churches. And the Jewish Christians are the ones who have sacrificed financially to send Paul and these other missionaries to reach the Corinth with the gospel. And now the church in Corinth is saying, we have this connection with you guys. We just want to return the favor. We want to say thank you in some significant way for the spiritual input that you've had in our lives. And it's very natural for us 
and very normal to want to support things that touch our lives and that have made a real difference in our lives or have touched our families personally. This is like giving 101, right? Most of us, just we just practice this intuitively in our giving disbursements of funds where there's a cause or an agency that has touched our lives personally or the lives of people that we care about we're statistically more likely to be engaged with that cause. Where cancer has touched our family or autism or whatever it might be, we're more likely to be responsive to appeals that are going to make a difference and support agencies that are making a difference in those particular zones because they've touched our lives personally. Or if we've been touched personally. I think about uh, Peter who is just over in Tanzania now and visiting some of the kids, sponsorship kids, and under the same sun. He's engaged with the plight of people with albinism in Africa because he has albinism himself. And so when he saw their condition, he said, well, if I was born in Africa, that would touch me so personally. And so he decided, I'm going to get involved in that in some way. Or our friend Amadou Diallo comes to Jericho every now and then. So the Christians in Corinth are kind of doing just that same thing. They're doing what comes naturally. They have been touched personally by the ministry of the church in Jerusalem. And the saving, they've come to saving faith as a result of that. And they've maintained some type of relationship because we can see that kind of back and forth transit that Paul has in the book of Acts. If they have a question, they send a, a, a little bit of a group to Jerusalem and say, what should we do about this? And then the Jerusalem church kind of talks to them a little bit about it. And so they maintain this active and interdependent relationship. And so when the church in Corinth thinks about meeting this need when there's been a famine and there's been shortages, they don't think about it abstractly. They think about it personally. There's a face to that need for them. And this is why here at Jericho, when we present giving options, like our 2013 giving guide we'll be releasing shortly, we put in it people that we have an active relationship with. It's because these people are part of our extended family. And these are people that we know. And we know what they're doing, and we know how they're doing it. And we know them personally, and we believe in what they're doing. And so though there's lots of options out there that we could give to, lots of giving catalogs, lots of all kinds of stuff, we say we want our gifts to impact our relationships that we already have in place. And this is also why Jericho Ridge, from the very beginning, eight and a half years ago, put in place in our budget institutionally a commitment to give to the networks and the people that we're connected and in relationship with. And so in 2013, we are intending as we come into towards the end of this calendar year to give away over $35,000 from our budget out the door to people that we know. So this is like uh, church planting, like the C2C network here in BC. And this is, we've started as a family three churches together, one in Kelowna and two in the city of Vancouver already this fall. And the existing church plants in this network are doing amazing. We have relationships with them. I was at one last week at Crossridge and was just so encouraged by what they're doing in Cloverdale and seeing people come to faith there in Clova Cinema. We have relationships uh, with our institutions like uh, Mennonite uh, Brethren Seminary and Columbia Bible College. I teach there every now and then. They have over 450 full-time equivalent students this year. Mennonite Brethren Biblical Seminary, it's huge enrollment. And we have relationships there. We're actually putting in our budget as a church 
that we want these students to get out the door with as minimum of student debt, as low as student debt as possible, and so we're going to support them in that. So we're actually funding Spencer to 25% of his coursework that he's doing at MB Seminary, both this year and next year. We're going to fund that as a church from our budget because we believe in, in training Spencer and training leaders, and we believe this is a great way to go about doing that. It's part of our family. Camps. As a denominational family, we have five camps here in the province of BC. And this summer, I called them this week and asked, over 5,220 kids went to camp this summer. And 668 kids made a first-time commitment to follow Jesus at camp this summer. That's awesome. We get to be a part of that. Because when you give to the work and ministry of Jericho, we send that money right out the door. And say, okay, these are people in our family. This is a relationship network that we have, we're going to send that. And on top of that, we support five workers here at Jericho Ridge, and we write a check every month to help cover a portion of their satellite with Random Access Network and Wycliffe and MB Mission and Youth Unlimited. And above and beyond that, with the gift guide last year, you guys gave over $4,043 to those projects. And on top of that, Jericho Ridge and people connected with Jericho Ridge raised over $30,000 in addition to all of our budgeted giving to send a team to Guatemala and distribute wheelchairs and then send a team to Laval and a team to Tanzania, which was more money on top of that, which didn't flow through our resources. And so this is incredible stuff. Like, we may be a little church, but I want to say that I'm proud of us in a God-honoring kind of way. (laughs) I'm proud of what God is doing through us. How's that? I'm proud of the way in which many people are learning and living out the value of generosity here in this community. It's good stuff. These relationships are getting fueled more and more, and God is doing incredible things, and he's getting the glory for that. And so when you add this up, we've got a new way in which we're kind of trying to figure out ways to picture what it is that we do around here. And so when we looked at, in 2014, how are we going to spend this money? And we added up all the areas where resources are being expended outside of the walls, to reach people outside the walls of Jericho Ridge Community Church. In 2014, we're going to plan to invest $92,390 in mission-focused relationships. So to the person that says, oh, the church is just interested in its own stuff, it's a little country club focused on itself and its members, funding stuff that happens for them, I would say you've got to look at the reality and it's just not true of us here at Jericho. It might be true of other places, I don't know. God has been incredibly good to us and as God continues to resource us, our commitment is to continue to resource the work that he's doing in the networks and relationships that we have. So that's giving principle number one. Give relationally, not randomly, because then as those relationships are nurtured and developed, we get to celebrate and hear the stories of what God is doing all around our province and beyond. So that's good stuff. That's giving principle number one. Giving principle number two. So we talked about the what, transform lives, at what we want to do, who we want to do it in partnership with. But the question that the Corinthians are asking Paul is, okay, so we know the what and we know the who we want to give to, the needs of the church in Jerusalem. The question isn't that. The question is, how do we want to actually go about doing it? And you get the sense in the text at the end of verse 2 that their initial plan, they had kind of an idea as to how they wanted to do this. They were thinking to themselves, I know what we'll do. We'll have Paul come and uh, like we'll get everybody together and Paul would make like a big speech, 
like he would tell some really engaging stories and then we'd take up a big offering and it would be awesome. We would totally nail it. But Paul says to them, bad idea. We are not going to go about meeting those needs in this way. Not only should we give relationally, but Paul says, give systematically, not emotionally. Because the problem with emotional appeals is that most of us have emotions that work. And so we're susceptible to emotional appeals in both positive and negative ways. For example, I haven't seen one for a while, but when I see Sarah McLaughlin on TV with a dog in her lap and singing, I mean, as a dog owner, I want to give to the BCSPCA. I don't want the horrible things that they tell me are going to happen to animals if I don't get involved to happen to them because my emotions get involved. But I'll use this as a good example. If you look carefully at this appeal, below that kind of layer of emotion, what's the next thing that Sarah says to you? She says, and this is like categorical, you know, everybody says this, every organization, they say, for less than the cost of a cup of coffee per day. What are they trying to say to you there? They're trying to say, don't just see the ad on TV, send us a one-time check. We actually want you to give systematically. We want you to get involved because over the long haul, they know that the emotions are going to wear off and you're going to feel uh, pressured by other emotional appeals. And emotional appeals have a shelf life. They fade quickly and they tend not to raise as much money as structured giving. And that's what Paul says to the Corinthians. Listen, if I come and we just do a one-off and I kind of give a rah-rah story, we probably are not going to do a great job of raising enough money to help these Christians in Jerusalem. Because who's going to be ready at that time? They're going to be like, oh, I would really love to give, but you know, I just can't. I just bought a new chariot and my monthly payments on that are very expensive. So Paul says to them, listen, Let's not think, let's not do it that way. Let's do it, let's have a plan. Let's do it systematically. And so Paul tells them, have a planned and regular habit of giving because the genius of this is when you do it, it allows you to respond thoughtfully when you're presented with compelling and also with competing needs. Paul doesn't want to be forced into a position where he shows up in Corinth, he has to perform a song and dance, tug on people's emotional heartstrings and hope against hope to raise some big dollar amounts for the needs in Jerusalem. So he gives them a very sensible strategy. And intriguingly, we actually apply this to our own finances on a regular basis in the area of savings. Just financial planning 101 is like, don't just put something away when you think you might have something to put away. Put it away systematically. You know, get your employer to take off the top or whatever you do, however you go about doing that. So why would we apply that to saving for ourselves and not apply it to giving and making a difference in the lives of others? Paul says, on the first day of each week, just like you do with savings, you should put aside a portion of the money that you have earned. Because the problem is, I don't know if your budget's like our family spending plan, but the problem I find with our family budget is if we leave giving until the end of the month, there is always more month than there is money. It just never fails to happen that way. And if we leave it till we have some extra or some leftover funds, we never give to anything, if that's the case, because it, it would 
just undercut that reality or we'd give away way less. So as I was doing my research for this message, I came across a phrase out of the UK which expressed this perfectly. And the phrase is this, every little makes a mickle and every mickle makes a muckle. As with many British phrases, it has to be translated into English before it makes any sense whatsoever. So here it is in English. The English translation is a lot of small amounts, every little, makes a mickle. They come together to make a larger amount. And every mickle makes a muckle. With a larger amount, a muckle is like a big, big thing you can do. So if you put all the mickles together, you can actually make a muckle out of things. And that seems to be what Paul is driving at here. A mickle is a lot, and a muckle is a lot of lots. I think a good example of this is our Benevolence Fund here at Jericho Ridge. We get calls for support from people in the community and within our church family as well from time to time. And if we were just left to respond emotionally or with whatever you know, cash happened to be lying around on hand in the time, we would never be able to respond to them or we'd spend through the whole budget by February. So we decided a few years ago that we would do a different strategy. We would take up a special offering on communion Sundays and then that money goes into account that's used to meet these needs. And on most communion Sundays, a little trickles in. And then when we put those littles together, a mickle trickles in. And then when we put the mickles together, we've had opportunity this year to do a lot of muckles and make a significant difference in some people's lives that have faced some real challenges here in our community. And so... Every little bit given makes a difference. And when it's given systematically and given regularly, it's powerful. Think about it. If you had put away $5, let's just say $5 a month, not even a week, not even a day, $5 a month since the last disaster struck Asia, you would have enough resources to be able to give over $300 to hurricane relief or typhoon relief. Just five bucks a month if you've just been putting it away. But if now there's a hurricane and we kind of go, oh, I just don't, I feel like I'm tapped out. I don't really have anything. And so the genius of systematic giving is being able to put it somewhere that then when a need presents itself, you can say, I'm ready to meet that need. And this brings us to our third giving principle that Paul highlights, that giving should be proportional, not equal. Now, this instruction doesn't actually come through super clear in the New Living Translation. In the New International Version, it's much more evident. Paul says in uh, chapter 16, verse 2, the second part of that in the New International Version, set aside a sum of money in keeping with your income. In other words, Paul says, those who have more substantive resources should be able to set aside more. But here's the trap that I fall into, and perhaps you do too. I love the way Chip Ingram puts this in his book, The Genius of Generosity. And we're going to actually give away copies of this book next week to everybody who wants one. Um, it's a really good little book, and so you'll want to be here next week to grab your, your copy. And in telling Chip's story, he says this, I'm not sure where I got the idea, but I thought generosity was reserved for something, generosity was something reserved for people who were either very rich or very holy. And growing up in a middle-class family, I knew I was neither of those things. 
I knew that being selfish was completely unacceptable, but generosity? Oh, generosity was reserved for another day, like the day that I win the lottery or make it to the major leagues or own my own business. In my mind, generosity required a lot of things that I didn't have, like a big bank account. Generosity seemed like a characteristic you might try to develop someday when the chips fall your way and you have a lot of extra to spread around. The problem, he says, I realized, is that if I waited until I have tons of money to give away, I would never get there. And so this is the genius of Paul's instruction, not just the regularity of it and the systemized aspect of it, but that there are those whom God has entrusted proportionally more resources to, and so they can set aside more resources. This past Friday was National Philanthropy Day. I don't know if you noticed this or watched on the news, but I watched a a report on the morning news produced by Business in BC magazine. And they were reporting on how fantastic it is that the wealthy here in Metro Vancouver, by which they mean people who have a net worth of over $1 million, were more than twice as generous as their counterparts in Washington state. And I thought, that's awesome. You know, way to go, Canada. Way to really dig deep and give. This is going to be great. You know, they're going to put up the figures and this is going to be exciting. So more than twice as generous as their counterparts. Now, guess how much money people gave away, the wealthy in Vancouver gave away in 2013? Guess. Per person, yeah. $1,000 higher. Remember, these are, these are people with liquid assets of more than a million dollars. So they, you know, they, and they checked off on the survey that they were going to give away 4% of that when they died. <laughs> but in this tax year, of their income that they received, millionaires in Vancouver told Business Magazine that they gave away $5,217. Now, you might be impressed by that, but I sure wasn't. You say, can I just say it? If you have a liquid, available net worth and a cash flow of over a million dollars in this calendar year, and the best you can manage to give away is $5,217, we are all in trouble. But I think the opposite danger is also true. And we can then look at that and say to ourselves, aha, I knew it, those stingy rich people. I am carrying more than my weight around here. When I look at my giving, you know, I'm doing pretty good compared against so-and-so because they have lots of money to give away. Let me tell you this. God is not going to hold you personally accountable for what the wealthy in Vancouver did or did not give away. God is going to hold you accountable for the things that he's entrusted to you. And so the danger that I fall into is that I can get proud and feel superior. But I think each of us needs to ask the question, why are we giving? What's going on in our heart? What's going on in our lives and our reality? So we're going to talk more about what that looks like next weekend. We're going to do a panel discussion But right now, I want you to remember that if you have any questions about this, I want you to write those down before you leave today and just leave them with Emery at the Welcome Center. Or you can tweet them to us, or you can Facebook us, or some of you have been emailing your questions in this week. That's great. But I want to say up front that in this giving principle of proportionality, not equality, 
our budget that we're presenting tonight at Vision Night is actually built on a principle. And the principle is that of equal sacrifice, not equal amounts. Not everybody gives the same. There's those whom God has entrusted resources to that can participate and set aside in proportion with their income. But like Pastor Keith talked about last week, with the widow's might, she gave incredibly sacrificially. And we believe that your money is connected to your heart and is connected to your spiritual life in significant ways. And so we believe that everyone here at Jericho Ridge can contribute something to the mission that God has given to us in fulfilling it here. Sometimes people will put a very small amount of money into the offering. And it might be, you know, even coins. And then you look at it and you can see the handwriting on it and it's some kid who's giving away from their allowance. Or there's some people who just pastorally, you know their life circumstances. And you see what they're able and, and willing to resource. And you think, that's an incredible sacrifice for them. I know where they're at right now in their life. It's a huge sacrifice. Somebody else could put in 20 bucks and feel really good about themselves, give themselves a big pat on the back, kind of a fee-for-service mentality, think that the angels are rejoicing in heaven that they've put a 20 in in the morning. And that wouldn't be sacrificial in any way. And so our budget is actually predicated on the fact that some of us can do more, but all of us will work together in accomplishing the things. And so, friends, I wonder, and I want us to think and dream a little bit when we gather tonight at Vision Night to think about what if everyone here at Jericho Ridge took a few more steps deeper into that place of generous living in 2014? And coming into the Christmas season in particular, this is a great time to think about it. At this point, we're having to focus on paring back our budget, and there's some people who are doing heavy lifting, and some people aren't giving to the budget at all, which, to be frank, puts extra pressure on those who are giving to the budget. But as we come into the Christmas season, whether you think to yourself, I have a little, a lot of those littles get together for a mickle, and a lot of mickles can do a muckle. And whether you think that you have a little or a lot, God is asking each of us in the area of our finances to walk in obedience to what he's calling us to do. So we don't guilt millionaires. We don't guilt people who are giving sacrificially or who are living in their resources. Every one of those, we believe it's God's heart for everyone to share the load together. Even those who live generously and who give generously, we all have room for growth in this area of our lives because our hope is that we can create an environment here at Jericho Ridge where there is hope and there is healing and there is growth and we can actually see a countercultural movement begin to take place with regards to how we live out our finances and generous living so that God can do amazing things in our lives. And so as you wrap up this morning, I want to challenge you to a simple action. Ask God this week, to speak to you by his Holy Spirit. Write down those three questions somewhere. Take a picture of the screen with your phone. What are those, those three questions? Are giving relationally, not randomly? Giving systematically, not emotionally? And giving proportionally, not equally? And you say, God, is there anything in any of those that you want to kind of me to push into a little bit more in my life? Talk about it with some people around you that you know and that you trust. Be transparent with them. 
be accountable to them and say, you know what, here's some things that we're really wrestling with. Here's some questions that we're asking. We're going to talk about some of those next weekend, and we'd love for you to join us. Ask God to grow your heart in one of these areas. And try something. Just take a risk. Take some new risk this week and try some new ways of being generous and see what happens when you live in a spirit of generosity. Let's pray together as we invite God to do a work in all of our hearts. God, we do thank you for the resources that you have entrusted to us as a community, as individuals. We don't take it lightly. And so we would ask that if there's areas that either institutionally and corporately or as individually you need us to make adjustments or changes or repent in some way or follow you in different directions, we want to do that, God. We want to invite you to stick that uh, temperature reading into our lives and see if there are ways that we can increasingly give with joy and see your work go forward in the world. And so, Father, would you do a fresh work in our hearts tonight as we gather to pray, to worship, to discuss? Would you do a fresh work in our own lives and reality? And God, we just know that this is an area of pain and shame for so many of us, and so we pray uh, for your grace to cover and to grow us in the way in which we think about money and the way in which we talk and encourage each other around these topics. We want to be found faithful, God. We want to hear as a church community, well done, Jericho Ridge. You have been faithful in the things that I have called you to do. And so we want to be obedient to walking into that. In the name of Jesus, because it's only by his grace that we can come to you, Father. We pray and say, amen. Amen. Well, thank you all for being with us uh, this morning. We invite you to be back here with us at 5.15. We'll have sandwiches. We'll have some appies and some desserts. And we'll spend some more time in conversation around tables. We'd love your feedback. And again, don't forget to write out questions you have and leave them with us uh, before you go. Uh, And we'll have a great time talking about them next week on our panel discussion. Take care. God bless. Mm -hmm.